So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Uh, thank you, everyone, who's been in touch since last episode saying lovely things about my interview with Adam Dean. Loads of you have tweeted me to say you found it illuminating and different to other things that you've heard about extremism. So thank you. That really means a lot. Um, but forgive me for doing a little bit of Ollie Man splaining here. But if you just put on Twitter at Ollie Man, what a great episode. I love your show. No one really sees that <laughs> apart from me and other people who follow you and I. Uh, the best thing to do, if you can, if you love a show, this is the best thing you can do for any podcaster, is simply say, I love this episode of this show and put a link to the show. That would be lovely. Please do tell your friends on social media about us. It really helps. Um, I also enjoyed this feedback from a man called Berry, who objected to my confession that I try and moderate my word choices for our American audience, like when I say sweater instead of jumper. Uh, he says, As an American listening to a British podcast, I sought you out because... I'm an Anglophile. I read all the famous five books when I was a kid. I know what a skip or a jumper is, or why fronts, or knees up, or cheeky nandos. What an amazing list. You don't need to Americanize things on my account. Well, uh, Barry, I'm afraid that my decade of podcasting experience has taught me to bear your fellow Yanks in mind. Otherwise, my inbox goes all, Why do you call it American football? What's Panto? Why is Eurovision? Uh, but you'll be pleased to know, Barry, that there are multiple references in the zeitgeist this week to a British key-cutting shop which will almost certainly bewilder you. Um, in fact, this week's middle interview is about something thoroughly British, brown signs. In the UK, there are thousands of these pointing to theme parks and museums and quirky attractions. And apologies in advance to Berry, but we do also add an American spin to the story this week. You'll hear me visit a uniquely American attraction as well. You'll have to keep listening to find out what. Uh, you will also learn in this episode where to find Barometer World, which watch Ollie Peart sports on his wrist. He was given it for free, apparently. And which gadget Hitachi don't want you to know that they manufacture. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. Ignoring your sat-nav, putting down your iPhone and just engaging in the world around you. Venture off the tourist track with the woman who follows the brown signs. This is one of the most hardcore sex toys that you can get that's not a fucking machine. And Alex Fox is picking up good vibrations in this week's Foxhole. But first, the amuse-bouche that is the zeitgeist with Ollie Peart. Hello, Ollie. 
Hello, Ollie. What are the big trends of the week? Fit fads. As you know, going to the gym is probably one of the least exciting things in all of the world. Basically, what people do, they spend lots and lots of money so that they can go to these gyms. But for most people, the simple fact of paying your gym membership is enough for them. They don't actually have to go to the gym, which has meant that all these gym owners have thought, oh, there's no one here. We need to come up with some... uh, new classes to encourage people in here. I'm talking about things like doga, which yes. is a yoga with a dog. Yep. The circus workout, which presumably you dress up as a clown. I yeah. don't know if that's true. Cardioke, which is karaoke <laughs> whilst doing cardio. And uh, animal flow, which I didn't want to look into too much because I thought it might be bestiality. Anyway, there's a new one. Right. The baby crawl. Okay, is this just like a fitness class where you bring your kids? Because those have been going for a while. No, apparently, according to the Daily Mail, the trend sees grown men and women wind back the clock by shuffling across the floor on their hands and knees. Oh, I see. Exercising in the manner of a baby. Yes. Do you not think it's completely and utterly ridiculous? Um, Well, I think all exercise is good. I think um, if you... Um, no, stop trying to justify it. It's absolutely outrageous. I think People are paying several tens of pounds every month to be told to I think it's be better to, to crawl. crawl than to not do any exercise at all. It's like um, old people doing walking football, isn't it? Have you seen that? I mean, that's ridiculous as well on one level. Walking football, fine. That, I kind of get that. Well, why, why, why is you... walking football any different to crawling exercise? What's well, the difference? Well, because crawling is... Right, right. First of all, I can't imagine that it has that much merit in terms of exercise. Right, so that's the research you've done, isn't it? What you can imagine. I mean, why didn't you look into it? Maybe there is actually a reason. No, there isn't. It's just bullshit. You're paying money for someone to say, get on your hands and knees and crawl on the floor. They're probably doing it as a joke. I'm sure Alex Fox knows plenty of people. What else have we got this week, Ollie? The Pocket Watch. Oh, yeah. Hollywood Reporter. Have you found a copy from 1829? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it might as well be. They basically have said, because of uh, Justin Timberlake and Johnny Depp, every man is going to start wearing a pocket watch. That's so ridiculous on so many levels, isn't it? I think fashion trends become trends not when the most beautiful men in the planet that are worth millions of dollars and can wear whatever the fuck they like start wearing it, but when, you know, you spot the guy working behind the till at Timpsons wearing it. You know, then if it still looks cool, that's your trend. Says the man wearing this. I'm wearing tweed and fleece today. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and you just said you base your fashion on the guy in Timpsons. (laughs) No, I'm saying Johnny Depp and Justin Timberlake can wear whatever the hell they like. Mm. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, but I think some of those fashion trends can trickle down into uh, society. Do you remember those, like, uh, slitted sunglasses that... Did Kanye West wear those? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, like, mean, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, They're not obvious... even sunglasses. They're just plastic no, things. No, they just make you look like a massive tit. They let all the light in, don't they? Yeah, they let some of the light they in. They let some of the light in, yeah. Have you ever worn them? Um, yes, I think I've worn them in... You know when you go to a wedding now and they often have, like, a fun photo booth where you dress up in stupid costumes? Yes. I think I've worn one there, whilst drunk and holding a rubber chicken. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's trickled down into society. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. I've got is that society? In- a wedding fun photo booth? <laughs> well, it's not not society. <laughs> is, that, is that how style iconography <laughs> works now? Apparently, they're going to become the uh, next big fashion item. But I, I started looking into them a little bit, because I just don't really know much about changed, pocket watches. It? Well, you went beyond these, the four these bullet are, points. These are just, some, just a little fact. Uh-huh. Do you guess how expensive the most expensive pocket watch was? Sold in 2014, by the way. 
in the world? In the world. I mean, if you said, guess how expensive the most expensive pocket watch sold in John Lewis was, that would be easier. You and John Lewis. I mean, there are those people who just put Diamante on anything, aren't there? You can say, what's the most expensive cat collar in the world? And it will be 50 grand because some dicks put Diamante on it. But that doesn't really mean that they're being sold at that level. So anyway, this is my excuse for saying, I'm going to say 100 grand, but that's obviously ridiculous and they didn't sell any. $24 million. <laughs> you're, you're well out. Uh, but it's basically the same, I bet. It's someone taking a yeah, Rolex yeah, yeah. and then it, putting exactly Diamante that. in it, right? It, uh, it apparently boasts 24 complications. What does that mean? Like, you know, like the date and the, the all the bits you can see. Watch lovers love all that. Are you a watch person? No. What are you wearing? What's on your wrist? I'm only wearing it because I got given it free. What is it? It's a watch. What is it? Is it a posh watch? No, it's a, it's a G-Shock posh watch. It's like an inverse snobby thing, isn't it? Where you've actually got quite a nice watch, but you want to be like a man of the people, so you're going to pretend you don't. Oh, so li- listen, I got given this for free. I'm not, it's fine, I'm not criticising Although, look you. at the size of it. It's, it's nice really watch. big and chunky. It has and I have scratched my car with this. About five complications, I would say, judging from what I've just learned. So that the, each of those little dials in the front might be a complication, and then the thing that you wind up is a complication? Yeah, there's a digital comp- complication. So how much is that worth if you were to have paid for it, do you know? I think it's about £300. £300, quid. okay. Which is ridiculous. Well, not I as don't ridiculous think it is ridiculous. Million. So, okay, in, let's just do watch talk for a second here, right? Go on then. Because if you read, like, a glossy men's magazine... And you look at the ads for the watches that they're trying to sell to us. You know, your Patek Philippe's and your Rolexes. Those average price are like 10 grand. So then I think that has the effect of making you think, if you're splashing out by spending three to six hundred pounds on a watch, that you're spending not very much. Mm. Whereas actually, if you look at the complications that are involved and the manufacturing process, you shouldn't really be spending more than about 100 quid on a watch, should you? Well, no, and I actually think you shouldn't be spending anything on a watch. A pocket watch, you've got to get out of your pocket to tell the time. What do you do anyway now? You take your phone out of your pocket to tell the time. What no, is the point? I'm, I'm, I love having a timepiece. Yeah, but on your wrist? Yeah. We're talking about a pocket watch. I'd wear a pocket watch. I mean, I wouldn't because I'd feel like a dick, but I, if I was <laughs> just the kind of person who thought I could get away with it, I would wear a pocket watch. You could get away with it. The only way I could wear a pocket watch is if I looked like an apothecary in a Victorian film. If that was the look <laughs> I was going for, that's fine. Yeah, well, you're not far off that. Yeah, but that's not the look I'm going for, is it? No. You know, you can tell, you tell by what I'm wearing now. I'm going for Uber Street Trend. You're going for Timpsons. What else have you got for us this week, Holly? What do all these things have in common? Is this the game for this week? Yeah, yeah, sort of. This is the closest we're going to get to a play-along bit. Yeah, okay, exactly. That's good. It always means the end is sooner than you think. (laughs) Go on. Daft Punk. Yep. Dead Mouse. Slipknot. Sia. Marshmallow. And Guar. Or G-W-A-R. What do they all have in common? I don't know. They're all Rolling Stone Artists of the Month. They've all got uh, merchandise deals with um, a sourceman company. They all wear masks. Oh, right. All the people you mentioned wear masks. Yeah. Uh Apart from Sia, she's sort of got like a a really long fringe, but it's kind of a mask. Okay. Basically, I think masked musicians are going to become a thing of the past because of the internet. Right. Not only can you Google away and actually see what these people look like, but also we we like recognition. We'd like to be recognised for what we do. And uh, masking ourselves means that actually people are just liking and loving a mask. But to take an example of Slipknot, they were around when we were teenagers. Mm. People weren't that interested in who was underneath the mask. They were only interested in the finished product. I just think the whole thing's a bit dated. You've got Daft Punk, Gorillaz, mm. just all a bit ridiculous. Hiding behind a character, yes. as you see it. Yes, exactly. Whereas I think it's just part of the theatre, isn't it, of creating a persona that actually... That will never go out of fashion. People are always going to want something in their rock and pop music that's a bit out there. 
Yeah, but you can still be a caricature of yourself. You don't have to put a giant mouse head on your head. Yeah, well, as you're proving, <laughs> if people <laughs> want to get in touch with the trend you can talk about next week, either as yourself or this giant parody of this section that this has become, <laughs> what do they need to do? At The Modern Man on Twitter. Yep. And that's it, I yep. think. No yep. other means of communication are open. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Now. A few weeks ago, I came across a tabloid news article. It was headlined, Are These the Dullest Women in Britain? And it was a jokey story about how a woman who's a pencil enthusiast and another one who's a barbed wire collector have been invited to rub shoulders with Britain's dullest men in the Dull Men calendar for 2017. And one of the women featured was Amanda Hone, who runs a website called Follow the brown signs. The article had a quote for her. Here's what she said. Brown signs took me on unexpected adventures to a lighthouse, brass rubbing centre and steam railway. Now, obviously this was designed to make her sound dull and therefore funny and it did the trick. She was invited for a flippant three-minute interview on Five Live and she was made fun of that week on Have I Got News For You? But I read this article and I didn't think Amanda did actually sound dull. I was intrigued by her enthusiasm, just as I'm intrigued every time I pass a brown sign myself on Britain's roads, to Butterfly World, to the Stanton Drew Circles and Cove, to the Mechanical Music Museum, these offbeat places you never actually go to. And I suspected there was more to learn about Amanda. So when I recently visited Bristol, where she lives, I took a detour from the brown signs to the suspension bridge in Bristol Zoo to meet her and find out how her brown sign obsession began. We went out in the car and I saw a brown sign to an otter and owl sanctuary. So I thought that was quite a weird pairing of species to have a sanctuary dedicated to mm. and thought it would be just appropriately fun to just turn off the road and just to see where it was. And So when you say appropriately fun, yeah, there's a hint of irony there. Yeah, it was. I knew it was going to be a bit weird and... You know, to have a sanctuary dedicated to otters and owls, I thought it was there's going to be a quirky person behind it, I thought. And it was maybe like two pounds to get in. And I walked in and basically this guy in a big blue overall like strode over and he was just lovely and basically said this is the sanctuary and it turned out that he was obsessed with owls and his wife was obsessed with otters and they had a lot of land and they just wanted to save otters and owls sounds like the setup to a harry hill sequence wouldn't it be hilarious <laughs> turns out that Fight. they yeah it turns out that they were you know they were they were segregated so she talked about her thing and he talked about his thing and first of all it was kind of a bit quirky and it was raining and it was just a bit you know it's one of those kind of typically british days out that you know could have been a bit drab but actually the more they talked they were so passionate about otters and owls and Mm. saving otters and owls and basically the countryside and talking about how you know environments have been encroached by urban you know living and you know lots of people and people not being engaged in the countryside around them and how important it was 
you know, the more they spoke, I was like, you know, they were making sense. They were trying by having their little brown sign in their otter and owl sanctuary. They weren't just saving otters and owls. That's that's the main thing about all of these places. They were started by people who wanted to inspire other people and they had these little passions and they want to open their doors to the world and basically enrich other people's lives. But if that first sign hadn't been for an otter and owl sanctuary but had been for some Roman ruins yeah. or a National Trust property mm. or something that actually to the rest of the world is quite exotic but to us is a little bit work a day, yeah. You might never have pulled over. You might never have started this obsession. Yeah, I guess so. There's there's a few elements to the brown signs that I like, though. So there's 93 different symbols that you can have on like different signs. Mm-hmm. So whenever I see unique ones, I always get excited. Like Hampton Court is unique. Jodrell Bank is unique. So who decides what the icon is allowed to be? Who do they send it to? Um, so I, I would think it's probably... It depends basically going a bit dull and nerdy now it depends it depends (laughs) if you're with us even this far you're up for dull and nerdy this week um so it depends where you want your brown sign so if Uh you if you are a bigger attraction and you've got a lot of visitors per year so like hundreds of thousands of visitors you can have a brown sign on trunk roads and motorways and if you're a smaller one you can only have it on a roads and b roads Uh and then depending on where your brown signs are the trunk roads go to the highways agency and that's approved by them and then if you've only got the you know smaller visitor numbers that goes to the local council that's their responsibility okay so how did your project develop over the years so it starts so it was just a hobby so I went to that one and then I kept my eyes out for different ones and to be clear on this were you just taking picture of you by the sign no, or were you ne- always no. going to the attraction I'm as well always going to go actually brown signing as a verb which I've made up you have to just spot the brown sign and you turn off the road and you visit wherever you happen to go Right. So one of the first early ones was the Maharaja's Well, which is on the <laughs> 4074 between Oxford and Reading. Oh, yeah. And basically, it's just a, a huge Indian Maharaja's Well in the middle of the Berkshire countryside. And it again, it was a really odd thing. But so that was a spontaneous drive. You said, I'm going to drive from Oxford to Reading and see which brown no, signs I see. No, no, no. I was driving from Oxford to Reading anyway mm. and spotted this sign. So then I saw this again. So I was like, okay, there must be loads. Like, I've done two of these in the last couple of weeks and yeah. just been spontaneously, you know, inspired. Now, there must be loads. So then I then got in touch with the highways agency and I said, there must be, as a nerd, there must be a list of all these brown sign destinations. And he said, no, there is not. And this is the reason why. It used to be as part of the English Tourist Board and then British Tourist Board and then they disbanded. Then the local councils and the highways agency got these responsibilities. And because of that, there's no big central database. And I was like, surely you're missing a trick. And he said, nobody's done it. You should. It's a hobby that got terribly out of hand. So um, you went to see a couple of things at the weekend. You started documenting them on a website. At some point, though, shit gets real. You're talking about actually turning this into... A full-time obsession. Yeah, absolutely. Can you pinpoint the moment that happened? Um, I went back to university to study occupational psychology. And occupational psychology is about getting people into the right jobs. So often people aren't necessarily in the right jobs that they want to be doing. And so I would go in and say, when do you get flow? You know, And often it's not in people's jobs, but they say, you know... I want to be, you know, really, I always wanted to be a designer. And, you know, they're sitting there in some office in a call centre and whatever. Mm. So I would, as an occupational psychologist, try to get the best out of people at work. Anyway, I was occupationally psychologised, I don't know whether that's a word, by one of my student friends at the time. And he said, what do you really want to do? And I said, well, you know, occupational psychology, I want to go in and do all this. And he said, 
no you don't what do you want to do so I said all right if you want the truth I really I love just randomly following brown tourist signs I love time (laughs) on the road on my own like inspiring people to go and engage in the world around them and this is what I'd love to do and he's like you've got to do it quit the job and traveled around in my car on my own for a long time just randomly following brown tourist signs and blogging about everywhere I went and how many places have you visited now who knows like hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I honestly don't know. Now, it used to be the case, and probably not very long ago, probably only in the late 1980s, for example, that the typical family at the weekend would be doing what you do. Mm. Okay, they might not be randomly driving down a road, but they'd think, okay, we'll go to a place, we'll explore the attractions. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that I try to get across on my website is ignoring your sat-nav, putting down your iPhone and just engaging in the world around you, just being spontaneous and noticing the world around you. You don't actually have to randomly follow brown tourist signs, but the idea behind it is that there's a whole world out there that's waiting to be discovered, but people will, for some reason, default to the media and they'll go on, you know, the 10 best things to do in Kent, as said by The Guardian. Like, who cares what the Guardian say? Like, their top 10 is not going to be my top 10. Like, I wrote a piece for the Guardian once. I'm not bitter about this. But I wrote a piece for the Guardian to the travel editor and he was really interested in the, the idea and he wanted me to write a piece. But then he then said, basically, what I want you to do is write a little bit about what you do, but then write the top 10 destinations in Britain that have brown tourist signs. And I said, no, I, I can't. And so my boyfriend was like, you're an idiot. Like, just write just write it just you're going to get in the guardian and you you'll write a really good piece and loads of stuff will come from it but i couldn't because that's not the point like loads of people say where's the best place that you've been to i can't tell you i've been to hundreds of completely different places and they're all amazing for loads of different reasons and my favorite isn't somebody else's favorite so i'm not going to tell them you know to go up my the point of it is to discover the world for yourself be inspired by the things that you get inspired by which is a different thing to the next person i mean that's very interesting but i don't believe you don't have a favorite i do have favorites what's your favorite um, okay (laughs) so i do love museums and i like little pokey museums that Uh don't have very good information boards and there's you know a guy with a white beard sitting behind the desk and you know he's been running the local rural museum for 20 years and there are a lot of those there, in the UK. yeah there are and, and they're, they're usually so terrible yeah they're usually terrible but brilliant they're brilliant in their own special way so they haven't got the slick presentation and they don't have hundreds of thousands of pounds from the heritage lottery funds to yeah. invest in all of this but what they do have is volunteers with amazing amount of knowledge who are really inspiring who are there giving up their time for free on a saturday to take families around and tell them and in the most engaging way possible by talking about the heritage of the local area and my, those my are my favorites one of those yeah and they're in Pittle village people. museum see we've got a plug Have you been? no but i will it's a very interesting display on the black squirrel there you go i mean who knew there was a black squirrel for heaven's sake <laughs> Well, look, I'm all about celebrating the eccentric, the underdog, and here you are on my show. Thank you. (laughs) But there is a serious point here, isn't there, that although it might be charming to go to a ship museum, there's something missing in the way that Britain does these tourist attractions, which in other parts of the world... They just put a bit more effort and understanding into making these things presentable. Mm. And it's great that you can go and discover them and be inspired. But I'll, I'll give you an example. 
I live in uh, Hertfordshire, not too far away from Elstree Studios. Okay. Now, that is where they shot Indiana Jones, Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, down the road is the BBC Studios where they made The Muppet Show. Uh, you know, it has the most incredible heritage for film and TV. Yeah. Now, albeit there is the Harry Potter experience, or whatever they call it, down the road. But you could land on the street where I live in a spaceship. And not know. And have absolutely no idea of the film heritage of that area. Yeah. And I just think if there was a street like that in almost any other country in the world, there'd be a dedicated tourist experience. There'd be a leaflet. Yeah. There'd be a place you could have your picture taken. Mm. Why are we so rubbish at that? I think there's a middle ground. So the worst thing is that they were all made into Harry Potter experiences. That would be awful. There must be, is there not a local museum near you? There is a library and they did have an exhibit of how they shot EastEnders there. Yeah. It's just a bit crap. Yeah, it's just a bit <laughs> crap. Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe it's something about being humble you know and not shouting about all of these things and not being american hey man look what we're doing here guys like shut up just we're just quietly getting on and well i think the north american thing might be i mean of course they have incredible heritage if you talk about native americans yeah. but i mean as a country being so young yeah i think what's interesting about that is because they don't have history going back hundreds of years in that sense when they have graceland yeah that's a big deal. Elvis lived there. Yeah. Whereas you go to Liverpool, the Beatles live there. No one cares. Yeah. That's because we've got thousands of years of history. I, th- I wonder whether it's that as well, because there's so much. Like you say, you know, any street in the UK, it's wherever you walk down, there is going to be some sort of important heritage that a local historian could tell you, say, you know, this changed the face of the world. I mean, loads of places, like so many museums I go to, they say this paved the way for how we live now. You know, there's a claim to fame in all of these. So actually, maybe there's there's a point that there's so much that we're just like, yeah, okay, this is just life and history evolving and that's okay. You know, it's not that novel, you know, which is good, I think, in a way. Okay, but you don't follow the blue signs, which are all about the history. You follow the brown signs. And some of the brown signs are odd. Yeah, some Talk of Talk me through some of, some of the oddities that you've discovered. Some of the oddities. So there's one that I've been told that it's closed down and that was the International Paperweight Centre. Oh. Barometer World, that's in Dartmoor. Is that still open? Yeah. I mean, that's a guy who basically fixes barometers, he makes barometers, he sells barometers, yeah. and there's a little museum as part of his shop. Now, do you have to pay for that? Because yeah. I'm guessing he doesn't get council funding yeah, for his barometer I reckon it's exhibition. Yeah, it's probably a quid. Again, different to the situation in North America. Yeah. I went to Gettysburg last year. There's the official attraction, which is funded by the US government, and then there are a lot of shops on the street yeah. that charge you the same amount to go in and look at a rubbish waxwork. Yeah. We don't tend to rip people off like that in this country no, either. No, not at all. Not at all. I don't think so. And I think that is part of the struggling, and especially when places close down, there's an idea that we should get heritage and attraction entry quite cheap. Mm. And actually, it's really important for the human brain and society in general to go and engage in our own heritage and appreciate it and not trail around the shops all day every day having our brains go completely mushy but it's we also want this very cheap or free and in London you know museums and you know art galleries are free and I Mm. think people in London take that for granted outside of London I mean I used to be a trustee on a small independent museum board and we used to have to charge six to seven pounds entry for a very small it's you know it's probably maybe an hour visit but we literally couldn't keep the doors open for any less than that but people would come and say six pounds are you joking amanda hone find out more about her brown sign project at follow the brown signs.com 
And if you find yourself brown signing this weekend, let me know which weird attractions you visited. I've put a post up at facebook.com slash ollieman. Let me know in the comments where you've been. And you don't need to be in Britain, by the way, to find an unusual attraction. In the spirit of brown signing, I recently headed off to Nevada to meet Tim Arnold, who runs the Pinball Hall of Fame in Las Vegas. Now, most tourists in Vegas see the Bellagio Fountains and go gambling and watch Cirque du Soleil. I would heartily recommend, if you ever do find yourself in Vegas, catch a cab and head over to 1610 East Tropicana, where you will find this incredible shrine to over a thousand classic pinball machines from every decade since the 50s. They are all playable cheaply by the way and the money goes to the Salvation Army. It's staffed by volunteers. It's such an awesome place and it's run by a pretty quirky guy. Here is what he taught me. The first time I saw a pinball machine was at a train station. This is back in 65 or 66 when they still ran trains and I just remember seeing it and I was fascinated because it was so big, unlike the little toy countertop pinball machine I got for Christmas one year that was made out of plastic. This was like a big, huge hulking thing. And I remember seeing all the old movies on TV where the gangsters all had pinball machines. So I thought they were pretty neat. I wanted to be a gangster. Gambling back then was strictly illegal. The only place in America where gambling was legal was uh, Nevada and Maryland. So I grew up in Michigan. And there, you know, it was just the allure of doing something evil and winning something for doing nothing. And then I figured out one day I could actually buy a machine and keep all the dimes and use it to pay off the machine and get the machine for free. <laughs> Do you know, I've never really thought of pinball as gambling, but here in Vegas it kind of makes sense that in context that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it was the, the pinball and gambling have always been closely tied together and the same Italian gentleman of leisure that controlled the gambling industry controlled the pinball industry. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely kind of the same thing. The difference with pinball is the target audience initially is kind of 7 to 13 year olds. No, not really. There was a pinball machine in every bar and every shot and beer joint in America. And a lot of times there was side gambling going on. You could hit a certain number and get a free beer or if you ran up a whole bunch of credits you could trade them in with the bartender for cash you know pinball machines can be used for a lot of different purposes you're thinking of the 70s when the the 70s and 80s when the arcade thing was at its zenith yeah talk me through that as well because i know you were an arcade man you ran your own uh, video arcade at one point which i guess involved video games and pinball side by side so there was there was an era was there when those things became conflated and they became seen as a child or a teenage thing and they weren't before well, it was a social thing, because teenagers had to have a place to congregate, and it was always at the mall, always playing pinball. And I was in the arcade business. Me and my brothers had several long-term, low-cost leases that we signed in the mid-'70s, and we were just kind of in this backwater pinball business when all of a sudden the video game thing started happening, and our income doubled and then tripled and then quadrupled, and all of a sudden it just took off. But you kept your soft spot for pinball. I mean, you haven't opened a space Invaders Museum. Well, no, I always had a soft spot in my heart for pinball because pinball is more of a game of skill where the player has more control. A video game is for children. It's just like playing tic-tac-toe. It's rote memorization, punch, punch, kick, kick, punch, punch, kick, kick. 
when you grow up and you become a man, you play a real man's game, you play pinball. <laughs> and looking around, actually, I would say your demographic in here right now is men, probably mostly in their sort of 40s. It seems to me, obviously, there's a, a retro feel to coming back and playing these machines. That's tapping into an experience of their childhood, isn't it? It's not just that they're now at the optimum age to play. Well, that, and you have to remember that if you grew up with several different pop culture things, myself, I had music, movies, and pinball. And if I got to be old and I wanted to relive my youth, I could go on the internet and get any movie or any piece of music I wanted to listen to instantly and for free. But since pinball only exists in the real world, this place is about it when it comes to revisiting your youth. And we have people that walk in here and they just look dazed like they've been hit with a baseball bat because here's something that was a large part of their youth that they've thought about and couldn't relive and now all of a sudden they're standing in front of the pinball machine they were playing the first time they kissed a girl or whatever the monumental event in their life was and they just it all comes rushing back to them. I can remember in the 70s when I first started amassing quantities of pinball machines I would pull up with a truck to a pinball operator and I would give him 50 or 100 dollars for all his pinball machines and he'd say, I can't believe you bought this junk. I was getting ready to take it to the dump. Thanks for giving me 50 bucks for my garbage, you idiot. And You're still monetizing it. I'm like Ted Turner when he bought all those old movies. In terms of value, uh, once they're restored and they're working, would you be able to say which would be worth the most to another collector? Or is it quite hard to put a number on that? No, there's, there's people that get severely into the value of the things. When I was a kid, I collected comic books and it got to the point where nobody was reading them and trading them anymore. They were all putting them in bags and calculating what the value was going up each year. And that's the point where I bailed out of collecting comic books because it just wasn't fun anymore. I don't really follow the values of the things because if I did, I would probably get so paranoid about somebody scratching them that I wouldn't let the public in here. So no, I don't follow values, and if it gets down to that point, I quit. Uh, is there a period that you think was the best? Are there ones where it went a bit off the boil? Well, as a curator, I'm not allowed to have an opinion. And you also have to understand that as a game operator, I'm not allowed to fall in love with my equipment. This is why all the best bartenders don't drink, and why you should probably go home and take your microphone off and stop being Jimmy Olsen cub reporter and turn back into a human being is because you don't want to fall in love with what you do. If I had to take my clothes off and play a pinball machine after I close, uh, I would probably play the games I played as a kid, the 60s and 70s, because I don't understand the new games and there's too many rules and too many ramps. I want a simpler, older game. But again, whatever rings your bell. My job as a curator is to throw it all on the wall and whatever sticks is art. Tim Arnold there, and you can find out more about the Hall of Fame at pinballmuseum.org. Christmas is just around the corner. So, what should you buy the craft beer lover in your life? You know, that mate of yours who loves craft beer, doesn't like to be beholden to the same old brands of lagers you get in every pub, and would enjoy unwinding across the holidays with some craft beer delivered to their door by a British company. 
how about a box of craft beers from Beer 52? Beer 52 are the UK's biggest, best craft beer company, and they deliver delicious craft beer to any UK address. The delivery address doesn't need to be the same as the billing address, so this is a great present for your father-in-law or your brother or your boss. And guess what? Just for listening to The Modern Man, you get £12 to spend on craft beer. That means you can get a box of eight craft beers for just 12 quid. Just visit beer52.com slash modern52. And for every one of you who takes up the offer, Beer 52 will send us some beer money as well. A box of eight craft beers for £12. It's beer52.com slash modern52. It's time to get down, dirty, but also educated with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ollie. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. It's a pleasure to be in your foxhole once again. Uh, It's very pleasurable to have you here. Uh, If you could just move slightly to the left, it'd be even more pleasurable. (laughs) Uh, What have you been up to this week? I got sent a really, really exciting toy. Well, it's exciting in my world. It's a brand new type of magic massager wand. Okay, I'm guessing it's not branded as My Little Pony. Well, it kind of is. Oh, it's got it. Actually, it kind of is. I was being this ironic. Is, the lovely people at Love Honey sent me this. This is a magic wand, which is branded up with a... a Japanese-style com- well, anime horse. yes, Tokidoki, they're called. They're actually Italian, but they're very Japanese-inspired. Mm. And it's a unicorn-shaped mega masturbator. So Look basically, imagine a Hello Kitty you put in your flange, and that's what Alex is showing Well, you don't put it in your flange. You put right. it on your flange. Yes. This is a non-insertable oh, really? vibrator. Yes, yeah. I didn't um, what, does it not have a bit that comes off and then another bit that goes in? No, no, it doesn't. In so fact, it's just I bought, massaging your doodah. I bought a second version that I also have, which is, this is one of the most hardcore sex toys that you can get that's not a fucking machine. What would you describe that packaging as? Because it looks it like looks you've got like an it should be. Or, it, it looks like it should either be used to assassinate someone yeah. or be on tour with a, with a heavy metal band, exactly, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. As, yeah as part Aluminium of it. hardcore case. Okay, yeah. what's inside it? What's inside is this. Wow. This. That's the black which, narcissus. Yeah, with, this looks like you could repair roads with it, doesn't it? In What's fact, you could that? probably break roads with it. This is a doxy wand, the UK-made doxy wand. I mean, I want you to just can I hold can that. Can I turn it Ollie, on? Does it vibrate? No, no it's mains it's powered, well. which should which should give you a clue as to quite how yes, yeah. much heft these things have. So, at one end of the spectrum, you've got the doxy wand. Yeah. At the other, you've got the new Tokidoki cutesy love honey wand. But both of these, I want to talk about because I feel like wands are something that for everybody who knows about them for every female who knows about them they can do really special things to your body if you don't know about them they can just look really intimidating and they don't look like a typical sex toy so you can really not know what to do with them and for many people ones have really changed their lives because by dint of them plugging straight into your your mains electrical supply they really do pack a serious punch and there's an entire epsom races of horsepower in this thing and um, is it part of the new wave of sex toys then that both of these things basically don't look like cocks i mean is that a growing part of of the sex toy well actually market? the magic wand design is really old it was originally uh, patented in 1968 by hitachi the hitachi <laughs> magic wand was uh, originally marketed as a body massager in fact hitachi have kind of over the years they've stepped away from being associated with that very successful product and at times even withdrawn it from sale or changed the name mm. because as a company they have 
had issues with being associated with a sex product. Yeah. Um, even though that's pretty much what 99% of people who make that purchase use it for. The reason that ones are really coming into their own nowadays, so to speak, is because so many people have realized that by the nature of how powerful they are, they can cause people to orgasm. They can cause women to orgasm who haven't orgasmed before. And if for any reason you're having difficulty with orgasming, for example, if you're taking SSRIs, antidepressants, ones like the Doxy, the Hitachi and the Love Honey Tokidoki can still help you climax. So they can be quite a life changer for a lot of people. Glory be. Yeah. Uh, let's take this week's listener question brought to you by mycondom.com. Who are a magic company in themselves. We've gone from magic wands to other other forms of... To making your wand magic. With yeah, a series indeed. ...of delightful prophylactics. One thing I will say about mycondom.com, which is a benefit I noticed myself whilst browsing their excellent website is that they promise to deliver your order in discrete packaging and it shows up on your bill as a different company as well. So I think that's quite important. If you're someone, particularly a man who's reluctant about buying a sex toy, for example... Uh, is that you know this you know however however positive we are about all this stuff you know if if you live with your parents for example or housemates or yeah. or you know you, or it's being signed for at work or other people in your building yes yeah. yes exactly <laughs> they're not going to suddenly know that you've just ordered two hundred johnnies um, so although quite I would love for the packaging to be even more discreet by actually disguising it as something else <laughs> so yeah. it comes here in full camo with bits of fern stapled to it <laughs> yeah Mark why have you Ordered a barbecue, it's December. (laughs) And this week's listener question is from someone who's chosen to withhold their name once again. I must say and emphasise, all these questions are real. We've never made up a question on the foxhole. uh, But you do have the option when you submit it through our website not to put your name if that makes you feel uncomfortable. And that is what this person has done. They say, I'm in my 30s and I've been married for four years. I love my wife very much. But for a while, I've had a fantasy about she-males. I'm not gay, as I don't find men sexually attractive at all. I have a fantasy about giving a she-male a blowjob to climax and receiving penetrative sex. My question is, is this normal for a man to fantasise about, or should I ignore it and wait for it to phase out? Please help. Okay, there's tons that I can do to help here, but first up, can we talk about the word she-male, what it means and its associations? So when people say she-male, they mean a trans woman who still has male genitalia, so has a ball sack and a todger, but in every other way looks like a woman. So has secondary female characteristics like breasts, uh, might wear makeup, have long hair, wear feminine, feminine clothing, traditionally feminine clothing, but still has male genitalia. Now you're using all the PC phraseology. If someone self-identifies though as a she-male because sexually that's something that they're interested in being, that's okay, isn't it? Some people will. However... The word she-male is usually associated with sex workers or people who do pornography. For many transsexual people, it's considered an offensive term up there with chick with a dick. But that exists in pornography because there are men out there, men who are otherwise in straight relationships like this questioner, who do find it attractive. So let's deal with that. How common is it? It is enormously common. The prevalence of porn containing... um, she-males or or transsexual folk is testament to how many people are watching it and figures on this kind of thing are really hard to get hold of because often when questioned about their porn viewing habits lots and lots of people lie Mm. but I did try and look into it and I found that uh, one source said that transsexual porn is the fourth most popular 
type of pornography amongst straight men. Wow. So this is really, really common. And, and there's lots of, uh, when you start to think about it, there's some kind of obvious reasons why. Because essentially by looking at someone who has male genitals, but in every other way looks like a woman, you are allowing yourself to indulge the fantasy of playing with a dick but everything else about that experience is essentially straight. So it's it's sort of a halfway house, if you will. I suppose even in straight porn, there's the thing about the, the penis, in a way, represents yours, doesn't it? So there's the element Absolutely. of you being part of the picture, I suppose. And the fact that so many people, so many male performers in porn have massive schlongs is not just to please female viewers. It's partly because I think men find it interesting to look at other people's penises. Even if you're not gay, being fascinated with other men's bodies is extremely natural and can be extremely erotic. Okay, but what about this contention that, you know, I fancy chicks with dicks, as you call them derogatorily, therefore... Am I gay? That is also, I imagine, a very, very common thing that people then jump to. It's a really, really common question. For a start, in my opinion, sexuality is on a spectrum. I don't believe just in 100% straight and 100% gay. I think there's lots and lots of variants along that line between Although, although if there points. are lots of variants, it also must be true that there are people who are 100% straight or 100% gay, no? Even if you say most people are on the scale. Yes, there are people, of course, who are absolutely straight never have any thoughts that deviate from that but i think for most people they've at least contemplated it or there are aspects of their fantasy life where thinking about someone who is a different gender gets them off um we should maybe focus on that the person who's asked this question has very much said this is a fantasy of mine it's Mm. something i think about people think about all sorts of things and don't necessarily want to translate those into real life yes so actually the answer to his part of the question uh, shall I ignore this and wait for it to phase out, kind of depends on whether that fantasy for you is something that you really do want to act out or whether you're happy with that just being a fantasy, like when you think back to something that happened 20 years ago. I certainly don't think he should feel in any way guilty about thinking about this fantasy as much as he wishes to and really enjoying it, provided it's not negatively impacting on his relationship with his wife, which it doesn't sound like it is. Yeah, but this is the thing. If he says to his wife, look, the thing is, I've always had this fantasy about a woman with a penis, that is something that his wife cannot give him i know you're going to say oh there are strap-ons available and all the rest of i it. am gonna say <laughs> i actually think but isn't it better not to mention it in a sense like you know isn't his wife gonna think okay well he fancies almost everything apart from me i know you're saying it's a woman with a penis but it's also a penis that the woman doesn't have well for a start we're assuming this is his one and only fantasy and i very much doubt it is secondly we're assuming that his wife will uh react negatively to it which she might not she might find the idea of him getting off to that fantasy really exciting herself many women like the idea um of seeing their male partner with another guy it also might be quite fun to penetrate him just so he knows what it feels like well if he did want to experiment with the idea of um actually sexually playing with someone who looks like a woman but has a penis but still maintain his monogamous i'm assuming monogamous relationship with his wife you we've discussed pegging before the use of strap-ons what we haven't discussed is ejaculating strap-ons which you can get if Mm. so he could carry out that fantasy with his wife or a close approximation of it what do they ejaculate um, milk 
Uh, you can put whatever you want in them. You can get um, lubricants that are opaque, so they're specifically designed to resemble ejaculate. You can uh, mix your own. Actually, there are various recipes on the internet. With well, that's a craft item flavors. you never see yeah. on this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in the past, when we've discussed pegging, though, we've only really spoken about the use of strap-ons to penetrate a man anally. We've spoken about how the existence of the prostate means that that can be pleasurable for many men and how, no, it does not make you gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we haven't really chatted about is some, yeah, some yeah. people use strap-ons women wear them and ask their men to go down on them. And so that, presumably that's a different type of strap-on that you're buying. It's one that feels, what, warmer and more meaty. Theoretically, you can suck any kind of strap-on, you know. How realistic you want it to feel depends on your personal preference. Some people do that as part of humiliation play mm-hmm. uh, or dominance sub- and submission. It can be seen as a very dominant thing for a woman wearing a strap-on to command that her, her man suck her off. But it might be also just a way of, of playing with sexual identity and and this guy may find that really exciting however he's not at any obligation to reveal his fantasy to his wife i don't think he should feel at all worried or disturbed about what's i mean i wouldn't be surprised if his wife had her own fantasies that she wasn't sharing with him you don't hear it much the other way around do you you very rarely hear women say that their fantasy is a man with a vagina i haven't heard many women say to me that their fantasy is a male person with a vagina. No, well, though I've heard many, many women say that they fantasise about other women. Uh, I think the rule is pretty much if you can think of it, <laughs> then somebody out there will be fantasising about it. Which is the lesson we learn every week here on the Foxhole. Alex, thank you as ever. If people have a question to send to you for next week's show, what do they need to do? They need to go to our website, which is modernmanma.co.uk, and then click on feedback, and you can ask me really anything you want you really can uh, also remember that if you visit mycondom.com we have a staggering 15 percent off their excellent merchandise which all is already super cheap anyway because they get such um, amazing discounts on on the condoms that they buy in bulk so 15 percent off makes it a hugely bargainous deal it's, it's quality stuff at a reduced price it's the costco of condoms and what's the code that you put in at the checkout you need to type in the word foxhole Well, that is very nearly it for this week's Modern Man. My thanks to everyone who has sent us beer money over the past week. Your support genuinely helps to keep the show going, so thank you very much. One such donor is Shi K from Singapore, who says, I really enjoy listening to the banter on the show. I hope everyone on the team enjoys a beer from me. We will, K, and thus I anoint you Manbassador for Singapore. Music now, our theme tune is by Django Django, they're fantastic, and this is our record of the week. It's by Sylvan Esso, and it's called Radio, but don't let that antiquated reference put you off, it's a heck of a tune, it could just as easily be called uh, Playlist. It's out now on Partisan Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Give me
retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.